This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's going on, brother? Hey, man, it's like you're joining us. It's been a while, bro. Listen, man, why'd you have to bring that up? I was just going to slide in. You know how... (laughs) You know how when you leave, see, this is the thing. If you're in a black church, you know how when you get up and leave, everybody turns and looks at you like, why are you leaving? You got to hold that finger up. Message. Yes, sir. Nah, see, well, you know, if you're in Baptist circles, you got to hold the finger up. You know, <laughs> Pentecostal circles, you just shimmy your way on out. But then, you know, you coming back in and you trying to do the, the, the side thing, come on to the side, not walk down the middle aisle. And you just made me walk down the middle aisle. So. Hey, look, we, it, it, we just missed you. That's all it was. Welcome back. Man, it doesn't sound like y'all miss me because y'all had Adam, y'all had Aaron, and y'all were killing it, man. I loved the episodes when I was gone. I was like, man, you know what? I'm just going to just take a couple of more weeks. And I was like, nope. No, sir. We need Burns 23 back. Excited for you, bro. Man, it's an honor. Thank you guys so much for uh, for filling in for me. But we back active and ready. We just going to hop right into it, Jamar, because I think it's important for us to do this. We got a guest on the mic today. I'm so excited about this guest. And it's funny because I was scrolling through Twitter, scrolling through Facebook, um, and saw this tweet and this Facebook post that were hilarious and made me laugh. And I'll have her read it when I introduce her. But I saw it and made me laugh. And I was like, ah, that's funny. And then I was like, you know, I know her. Like, we know her. (laughs) Like, really, really, really know her. Like, we know her really well. And so I was like, man, you know what? We should... We should have her on because I think she's touching on some things that we need to talk about, no man. Doubt. So, yes. Allie Henney is our guest. Um, we are so excited to have her on Pass the Mic. Allie is an MDiv student, correct, at Fuller Theological Seminary? Is that right? Yes, I am an MDiv student. I am in my fourth quarter. Um, so, I will be starting my second year this fall. I'm still taking classes this summer, though. So. Uh huh. I remember awesome. that. The life. grind never stops. The, the grind. grind never stops for Allie. Nope, and, not at all. And also, we want to point this out, but Ali is one of the administrators of the Pass the Mic private Facebook group, Woo-hoo. which means y'all should send, stretch your hands toward the whatever you're listening to right now. Pray for sanity and peace <laughs> and all the moderation powers. Um, Ali does a phenomenal job with our other um, moderators and admins, Noelle Allison. And then also I want to give a shout out to Nicole King as well. She did Absolutely. it for a while. And Kevin Garcia. Thank you guys so much for what you do and did. Um, you guys are awesome. So, Ali, this tweet, I got to be honest with you. I laughed. I laughed to the point of crying, okay, because it, it, it was really true. I want you to – do you have this tweet pulled up? Because I want you to read this tweet for everyone and in the way that you would say. I was going to read it, but I'm like, it would not be right for me to read yeah, it. I want I you to read it how you, how you meant it. Okay, so the tweet is, y'all trust Trump, but need three doctoral dissertations, 18 Mm. sermons, an angelic visitation, Mm. kind words, 
43 scriptures, the ghost of Harriet Tubman, four testimonies, and an affidavit signed in the blood of the slaves to believe black people when they say they're experiencing racism. Now, Jamar, listen, I'm going to tell you, the ghost of Harriet Tubman, that's when I spit out my dream. I mean, it was was the ghost of Harriet Tubman. Yes, yes. And a signed affidavit by the slaves. Come on now. In the blood. In in the blood. In the blood. blood. She heard him. She heard him. Now, I got to ask you this, Allie. Every time we, we go on these tweet rants, there's always a catalyst. There's always something. Someone lit a match and threw it into our proverbial timeline or threw it into our lives. And it made us think like, yo, I need to say something about this. What Was there a particular incident or, or circumstance or occasion that made you say this? Like what was going on? Was it a personal interaction? Was it just watching a TL? Was it... 45 like what, what was going we, on we should also say this went viral yes it, it did it did my <laughs> phone was my phone was blowing up for a couple of days so actually what sparked is i actually posted um something similar to this on facebook about a year ago um and it was in response to the the shooting in las vegas after the shooting that horrible shooting where 50 some odd people died i saw tons of conspiracy theories tons of people mm. that couldn't believe that this person just had shot these folks up there had to be some sort of conspiracy it had to be george soros or or crisis actors i don't even know but i'm sitting wow. here and seeing all of these conspiracy theories floating through my timeline and so i just thought like all these people will believe these conspiracy theories but then this these same people whenever i say that i'm experiencing racism they need all this evidence to substantiate it but they can have a blog post from some person that they could just be in their mom's basement and <laughs> posted all this stuff they don't have to be a ballistics expert they don't have to be anything they can just be in their mama's basement just making stuff up and photoshopping everything but people would believe Believe that over me saying, hey, I actually had this experience. You know me or you are interacting with me in some way. I'm an actual person with it, with a with a Twitter, with a Facebook profile. You can trace who I am. And I'm saying that I have this lived experience. But then you need all this evidence in order to, to believe just the baseline of that. Isn't that crazy? Like, you know, that's so true. I, and it's not just after the Las Vegas shooting. There were so many other conspiracy theories, which is so... uh, The main one that got me was Sandy Hook. So right Mm -hmm. after the Sandy Hook um, school shooting, people were coming out and saying, oh, well, this is what crisis actors do. I'm like, man, children are dead. And you guys are on here talking noise about conspiracy theories as if it doesn't affect real Real human beings. Yes, And it's shocking because you, you put that up and it's like, we will take the most obscure evidence that we can see and build a case from it. But let Philando Castile and Alter Sterling and Tamir and y'all are I'm like, how does this work? Like, yo, you don't see yes. anything here? Like, oh well, you know, he shouldn't have resisted. He shouldn't I'm yeah, like, man, yeah, this yeah. is really odd. Like that's a whole other chapter they add yes. on to it. It's like not even do they not believe you, but if they give you even a little bit of credit, they're going to attempt to discredit what you say in every possible way. So whether it's a a, a police related killing of an unarmed black person, they're gonna say, Well, he should have done this or she shouldn't have done that, or what were the mitigating circumstances? In other words, trying to flip it and find a way that the victim deserved what they got. And so that that can happen on big scales or small scales. So it's layer on top of layer of just kind of pushing back 
this reality of racism that people of color, particularly black people, try to simply share about. We may not even be trying to trying to get you to do anything, but but say, I believe you. Right. Like a lot of people yes. ask, what do you want? Just say, <laughs> just talking about your existence. Yes. Oftentimes people, people will push back. If you say, well, I had an incident in the store where somebody tried to grab my hair, then it's, oh, well, but this, but this, oh, but this, oh, but like I have a different color hair. So people do this to me all the time or, oh, well, that probably wasn't really racially motivated or there's all of these different ideas or reasons. And it can't just be, I'm black and I'm saying this felt racist to me. There has to be a whole other narrative. There has to be a whole other thing. And really it comes down to just disbelief that we would be able to name our own experiences and be able to name our experiences accurately, I I think. And so in crafting this tweet, I'd actually, I was, I was talking to my husband um, just, we were were just talking about stuff and I don't even remember what I was saying, but I was like, just my mind that, 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 uh, post I made on Facebook came into my mind. And so I was like, you know what, I should I, like, I need to say this again. I need to make this, make run this a little back. bit more, more ever. I need to run it back. So, um, so on my Facebook page, um, I, I was talking about clickbait and different stuff. Um, Cause I figured that your know, Facebook is a little bit more of an evergreen sort of platform. So that's something that I can, I can share that and reshare that and reshare that and share it again. You know, you have stuff comes up in your memories and you're like, Oh, that was good. Let me, let me share that again in the next year. So that's something I could share every year. But then that, you know, I was on Twitter and I was like, well, how can I like put this out here on Twitter? And so, cause Twitter is a little bit more, it's just, it's just the moment. And so right. I just, you know, it was like, okay, well, what, and I was just thinking and I, and I copied and pasted the, the original post that I had made into Twitter. And because of the uh, word count or the character count limit, I was like 23 characters over. So I was like, okay, how am I going to rework this? Mm-hmm. And so I just thought, well, you know what? People believe the president and they, they trust. And a lot of people trust everything that he says. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the same people mm-hmm. who will trust everything that he says and will chalk everything up to being fake news, will chalk everything up to the liberal media, will chalk everything up to anything except, well, maybe the president told a half truth here, or maybe he just outright lied. They will chalk it up to everything else. But then some of the same people who believe the president on everything won't believe me whenever I've said I've had Mm. this experience. And so that was just sort of where that was. Like, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I just want to say this. You're really touching on a really great point because when you say y'all, you're not meaning everyone else really. What you're meaning are people who know you. And I think that's the fascinating thing is like, I think the y'all cuts deeper when it's not random Joe Schmo who follows me on Twitter. But when it's friends, when it's when it's family, when it's people who have been around you, when it's people who share the same church, when it's people who share the same denomination, like that's when things get really interesting. Because what you were talking about earlier, especially with, I think, a great example of someone trying to touch your hair or what have you. It's like, well, you're believing and making excuses for someone you don't even know, a stranger that you never met over me trying to explain away their. I don't know what it is, their apathy or their ignorance. And you're trying to explain it away when you're talking to someone you know and have personal relationship with. Like That's the crazy part is why don't friends, why don't, let's be honest, fellow Christians believe us? It's just so weird to me. And so that's why we want to have you on because we want to say, like, is there something, I think you're touching on something deep down below. So Jamar, I know you've, you've had this happen before. Friends, 
people who you who you know who know you step back from agreeing with you, step back from validating, affirming what you're saying based upon someone else, right? Yeah, man. You know what? You brought up fellow Christians. And I would say one of the times of the most acute sense of personal rejection I felt as far as me just kind of sharing my experience um, in terms of race, it was while I was in seminary from other seminary students. So we started this program to recruit more African-American students because it wasn't but a, a few of us. You could count on one hand. I'm not lying. And uh, we were trying to talk about race here. I'm going to school in Jackson, Mississippi, the deep, deep South. Right. So it's it's very relevant. And as I'm sharing my experiences, whether it would be in like a small group setting discussion or just in one on one conversations, it, it would be just this wall. Right. Like now people were polite. OK, they weren't rude, but there was a deflection like, well, are you sure that was racism or, you know, I've done the same thing, but that hasn't been the case. Or the favorite one is, well, this instance happened to me, so it's obviously not race-based if it could happen to a white person. And so there were all of these different kinds of explanations. And it, it's really frustrating because these are friends, or, or, you, or so you thought. You know, They're friends up to a point. They're friends up to the point where you reveal that there are two different Americas. Many different Americas, really, but between yeah. black and white, there are different Americas and different experiences. And when you, when I have tried to share that with people, there's been this disbelief and even an outright defensiveness and a rejection of what I'm saying, which amounts to a, a feeling like they're rejecting me personally. And I'm glad you brought up seminary because, Ali, you were one of the leading proponents of Seminary While Black and yes. Toxic Fuller and critiquing the, the organization that you attend and trying to to gain some sort of, of understanding and clarity from people around you and people in power that, hey, we're going through some things that you guys aren't paying attention to. What was the response like to that? I know we've had you on to talk about that before, but but what's an update as to the response of are people believing you? Are they rallying behind you? Is there understanding? Like what's what's the latest on that? Well, the response has been, I think, from the institution has been very good in terms of they have been responsive. They have been agile in since the since the protests, um, Fuller has updated its inclusion page. So fuller.edu slash inclusion. They have updated that page and have included some of the Black students' demands and then some of the items and some of the ways that they are seeking to improve that or things that they have done in the past or are have working in progress to do. So they've, so they've been very, Dr. Laberton has been very responsive in that way. Of course, time will tell in terms of just what it, that will look like times time will tell just in terms of how that actually plays out in the institution itself, because it's great to have a bunch of things on paper, but in actually executing the things and actually doing what you're supposed to do and getting all the people who you say that you're going to get and all that, that still remains to be seen. So the institution on the overt out loud level on what they're on what they're putting out they were very responsive they actually responded um because there was a, there was a protest during our baccalaureate ceremony 
um, that same week that Seminary While Black happened. And so there were some students in Pasadena who actually protested at baccalaureate. And within that week, within a few days, the administration had put out a statement about mm-hmm. that. And so they and they have run that statement several times. And Dr. Laberton has done a Facebook Live talking about that statement and talking about some of the stuff that they're doing. So the at the at the kind of administrative level and sort of I guess at the PR level, maybe that's a better way to say it, is that at the PR level, they they are responsive. So then within the Fuller community, because where this um, hashtag really started to take off was among people in the Fuller community. And Fuller Fuller's culture is very is is unique in that people are responsive to change. People are responsive as a whole. I feel like to new ideas. It's just really getting rid of. Um, white normativity and divesting in white supremacy that I think that that what the what the Fuller's culture has to do with. But we had a lot of support from students, from faculty, from former faculty. And then, you know, there I didn't see this as much from people who I knew were part of the institution. But there were some people who were sort of on the outside of the institution who leveled some critique. Um, there were some there were some blogs and some different individuals who I think really were maybe just trying to bootstrap off of what we were doing um, whenever whenever Jamar and I um, had appeared on Jude 3. There were some people that had made a response and stuff to that, and it was really just petty and, and whatever. I didn't even watch the whole thing, but I was like, oh, hey, wow, that something happened that somebody decided to make a video about mm-hmm. something that I did. Okay, well, I feel kind of famous or something now. Um, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, so there's, so there's cool. been um, sort, of, sort of that sort of element. Um, I've had a lot of questions from people who know me, who, and some of those questions have been great, have been, they, it's been wonderful dialogue. And then there's been a few times where, sort of, where I've just had to say, okay, but trust me to name my experience. And so that's, and so that has sort of been the, 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 the response. Um, so I would say um, in a nutshell, overwhelmingly positive. And of course, in saying positive, meaning that that doesn't mean that there isn't more work to do on the institutional side, but that, but people's response has been, has been very good. But then there's been an element of people often who I think are detached from the culture of Fuller, who are detached from the, the institution who then have critiqued it and have critiqued it using their, their own paradigms. And then sometimes I have been looped in on that critique and I've been looped in on people asking questions and not believing and wanting evidence and, and all that. So that's been really interesting. And I find that very fascinating. Number one, that that's encouraging to hear that Fuller is responding. And I think that's really the root of what protest is aimed to do. It's, you know, I think people are afraid of protest and they're afraid of being challenged and confronted on certain things. But in reality, it's an opportunity for change. It's an opportunity for growth. And in the midst of it, I think we find that we all grow. We all learn some things. We all find a different perspective, but not just for some intellectual ascent, but to come to a different understanding of how we're supposed to treat one another and value one another in the kingdom of God. But what's fascinating to me is that I think that this this idea of not believing Black people, I think there's a root in history. And so I, I happen to know a historian. He's, he happens to be on the mic as well. So Jamar, Mr. Doctoral Student in History, do you see that there's any sort of historical connection to not believing Black people now and historically having an element of suspicion whenever you see people of color? It has to do, I, I think, a lot with 
the amount of contact and the kind of contact you have with people who are different. And this can cut across all kinds of lines, whether class lines, racial, gender. But in terms of black and white race relations, there's always been a separateness. And this is South and North. So a lot of people overlook the North, whether in the antebellum period or even the Jim Crow period. But the, the North was far more segregated geographically and spatially speaking than the South ever was. And so if you think of urban areas like Chicago or Philadelphia or New York, you had all of these ethnic enclaves. And of course, you had black people confined by law and practice and intention to certain areas. So the interactions that people would have, people would often remark that in the North, you know, you could ride in the same train car or go to the same movie theater and and walk through the same entrance. But as soon as you punched out at work or left this public area, you lived completely separate lives, schools included. Now in the South, obviously we remember the South for being hyper segregated in a way, or at least hierarchical. Um, But a lot of people, a lot of people would come down to the South and be amazed at the physical spatial proximity of black and white people, because you, Mm. you would have black women raising white children nursing them in the home. You would have black men working the land, being the butlers, having really actually frequent daily interaction. But it was always in a very rigid social and cultural and political and economic pyramid where people of color were on the bottom. And so I say that because it frames, even though you can have interaction, the question is what type? I'll never forget this. We were talking at my seminary. We had a a, a, we, a movie viewing of the movie The Help, uh, which came out a few years ago. And it talks about um, this white woman journalist who tells the story of black um, housekeepers in white homes. Boy, don't get me started on The Help. Hey, don't get me started. Bro, Keep moving. There's, Keep a moving. Lot, there's a lot there. So we, we, we talked we'll about it. We started on that movie. And then... An official from the seminary uh, afterwards, he, he, he wasn't there. He was just kind of talking about how the event went and whatnot. And he said, you know what? We had the help when I was growing up and we treated her just like family. She was like family nah, to us. Fam. Nope. Nope. What? And I was nope. like, what? No. I was like, bro, you know, I didn't say this to him. It's one of those things you think of later and you wish you had said. But I'm like, you know what else is like family growing up? The family pet, the dog hmm. that you have mm-hmm. and you live with that dog and you love it and play with it and it's part of your family for years and you're sad when it goes but it's never considered equal and in so many ways Mm. um that's been the experience so then what happens when um black people who have to perform happiness in these situations they have to fake it like they're content because they could lose their job or be persecuted if they don't then white people all they know is happy blacks and I remember this right. too. I'm sorry. I got to get one more story. In. Nah, get it, get it out, man. Get it out. So one of my first online backlashes for anything I wrote was when Phil Robertson from Duck Dynasty, 
said something about Bruh. happy blacks. Mm-hmm. Happy blacks, bro. <laughs> yes. Bro, that was one of my happy. first Facebook like explosions. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I, I was totally yes. unprepared for it because to me it was self-evident, right? Like you have this this white dude who um lives in a very different world, even even if he grew up poor, right? It's still a different world and different expectations, racially speaking. And saying that, yeah, I was friends with black people growing up. We worked side by side and they were all happy. And so I wrote a post like um, black people weren't happy. They had to pretend to be content with their situation so they wouldn't face more persecution. But if you actually listen to their experiences, if you actually got into what their reality was like, you would understand how terribly unjust their reality was. And so when I wrote that, I mean, it was like you had insulted, I don't know what, an idol. <laughs> and they came out, man. I was like, wow. You just He is an evangelical idol though. He really is. He is. He I is. mean the whole Robertson yeah. family, you know, which mm-hmm. that's another podcast, but anyway, keep going. So I was that's just an example of how different the reality is for black and white people. And I really think that the broad middle of white people who are not, you know, foaming at the mouth racists or anything. But they've had such a different social and cultural experience that they really can't even wrap their brains around the kinds of racism we continue to experience. And so the, re- the, the experience is either the reaction is either, um, wow, you know, kind of amazement, don't know what to do, don't know what to say, or it's rejection. Because if that's real and that's what's going on, how am I implicated as a white person? Right. Exactly. And I think that's the root of it. Why why aren't we believed in these contexts? Why does being a person of color and, you know, in broader, expansive, you know, elements, why does being a woman, which Ali could talk about, you know, a black mm-hmm. woman, I mean, you could talk about with great authority, like this whole idea of why is it that we are not as people of color believed? And well, you know, I go ahead. Oh, no, I'm sorry, ahead. Tyler. No, go ahead. Well, you know, I think that I think that that comes down to several different things. First of all, and Jamar hit on this a little bit, is that there are cultural differences between black people and white people. And I think that in particular, whenever we start to name our experiences, there are different cultural communication styles that are in effect there. And so that um, muddies the waters a little bit. And that's not to let anyone off the hook for their racism, but there's, and I can unpack that in a moment, but there, but there are some cultural things that are, that are present that I think the majority culture doesn't see. And so they don't know how, they don't know how to interact with that. I think that also the myth of white racial innocence, that there's this idea that white people are innocent in all cases that have to do with race and that they have and that the burden of proof then rests on black people to prove that the white that whatever happened was was a racist incident the other thing that i think that is at play is that there is still in this nation among the majority culture and some people of color but mostly it's the majority culture there is a jim crow understanding of racism our understanding of racism hasn't developed since dr king's assassination the other element of it is that there is a pathologizing of blackness so there's this mm. idea that oh, black you people mean, come on <laughs> there's 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 a pathologization that says that black people, even if there is enough, we produce enough evidence or we say enough things, well, you're just, well, you're bitter or you're making up things or whatever. And all of that is undergirded by white normativity and white supremacy. 
Hmm. Wow. And you want to know what's the what's my favorite uh, out of the last one that you talked about? This whole idea, this is what y'all want. What? Like, why would we want this? <laughs> like, oh, you just want to yes. stir stuff yes. up. Like, what do you mean? Like, what are, what are you talking about? Like, stir stuff up for what? What what it's, gain is there? In that's, there's just a whole bunch of online vitriol. People are talking about us. People are blacklisting us. We're losing opportunities, but this is what you guys want. Yeah. For what? Like, we, nobody's getting paid off of this. this like, what's fun. going on? It ain't fun. It, it, it baffles me. Like, people will say, oh, you're just espousing the victim mentality. Look, what, victim mentality? What are you talking about? Um, there's a black scholar who, say, who says that um, black people aren't victim, but we've been victimized in a very real way, yes. right? And so when we try to s- share that experience... And you deflect it, you become complicit in that victimization, like just just by not hearing this. And then I'm glad you brought up, Ali, the fact that our ideas of race haven't changed since like 1968. Um, I think that's 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 right, because there's a sense, um, even if it's unspoken, that once we passed a few laws in the 60s, Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, Fair Housing Act, you name it, racism is over. That's how people act. So when we talk about racism in 2018 or the 21st century in general, folks are like, well, what do you mean? There are no signs over drinking fountains. People can ride in the front or the back or the middle of the bus or wherever. And they think of that Jim Crow kind of segregation, the Ku Klux Klan types of overt racism and hatred, which, by the way, hasn't gone anywhere. Um, But they, they don't. Like there's this big battle for people over microaggressions. Like, are they real or not? Man, look, when I was in college, um, I was I was one of three point three percent of African-Americans. Right. Overall, minorities were about 15 percent. So 85 percent white undergrad. And I remember being in a college dorm with all white guys. And these guys would. Constantly, it was sort of they, they would. My my hair was my head was bald at that point on purpose, um, and and they would rub my head, and it was the most patronizing, mm. condescending thing. I imagine it's what it would be like for a black woman to have somebody come up and touch your hair. I'm like, man, you don't know, don't do that. And then they would ask me all these silly questions, like, hey man, what are the lyrics to that rap song, or can you show us the latest dance, man? I know you know the moves, Boy. bro. Listen, Jamal, I know God is with you because I'm just going to tell you right now, like, I ain't there right now. I'm just going to say, like, I'm working through it. The Lord is continually sanctifying. I didn't know. I can't. Bro, if I knew then what I know now, it would have been it would have been ugly. But um, so those kinds of things like nobody's punching me. Nobody's locking me out of the classroom or whatever. But those are subtle ways of saying your other you're different, maybe even you're less than. And when I hear your experience, I'm going to take it with a grain of salt because it's so different from mine. And I have such a very narrow caricature of who you are and what your reality might be. So, I mean, those are, those are real. You you know what it made me think about um, in particular, especially your tweet, Ali, was, you know, I've been reading through the book of Luke and when you get to Luke chapter 11, Jesus goes into, um, I think it's a verse like 37-ish or somewhere around there. But Jesus, he goes into a place and reclines to to eat. And the Pharisees are shocked that he didn't like wash his hands before he started eating. 
And then Jesus goes on this rant. Like he just basically puts the Pharisees on blast. He's like, woe to you because you do this. Woe to you because you've taken away the key to knowledge. Like woe to you because of all this. And there's this verse at the end of that chapter, which says something to the effect of that once Jesus was done, the Pharisees opposed him fiercely. And they begin to ask him him questions to try to to try to trip him up, to try to catch him in what he was saying. And it's crazy to me that the Pharisees had created an entire religious structure that benefited them and oppressed others. And the structure, Jesus came and said, no, the law that you are using to oppress other people, I've come to fulfill. I am going to redefine and re-explain and fulfill what it is that was prophesied in generations past. I'm going to explain it to you in its fullest context. And the Pharisees hated him for it because he upended what was a system that benefited them. And so I think it's important for us as people of color, as people who are Christians attempting to do the work of justice and even reconciliation, is to make sure that we recognize that when when you bring up these types of things, you're touching people's idols. And people never like their idols to be touched and tampered with. And if it's a system, it can be nostalgia. Like I found that nostalgia is one of the most powerful idols. Just remembering things better than what they actually were. Oh, well, this is how I remember it. It doesn't mean it was accurate. It doesn't mean it was true. It's your limited perspective. And your memory probably isn't even that good. But still, nostalgia is an idol because you have to preserve. I mean, I can't even imagine what it's like for someone, for a woman when it, when it comes to sexual assault, like that's another thing, nostalgia. Oh, well, this, this he's a good man. I, he only interacted with me in a good way. Like, what do you mean? He's a nice guy. As though that precludes them actually doing something heinous as assaulting someone without their consent. Like, what, what do you mean? Like touching someone without their consent? Come on. And so I think we have to realize that and we're touching idols. And when you touch idols, there's always a backlash. Yes, absolutely. There always is a backlash. And whenever I have spoken out about things personally, there's always a push for more evidence. And you talk about the um, way that the, that the Pharisees used the law. They, they, they had a system and they used that system and then they held everyone else around them to that system. And so I think that that is why that, that if we take that idea, that schema and apply it to racism and apply it even to why black people aren't believed whenever we say that we experience racism is that the cards are stacked against us in a lot of ways because the majority culture says that they set the rules for what racism, what racism is. They set the rule for what racism is. Then they say, well, you have to produce this level of evidence in order for us to consider it racism. And so then once we produce what we feel is a sufficient level of evidence that something even is racist, then it's, oh, well, that can't possibly be racist. But it doesn't like we're racially innocent. We can't. That's not racist. It's the here's this other explanation. And whenever you start to explain the history and start to explain systems, it's like, oh, well, no, it can't be that. And then it gets into the pathology pathologization. I cannot say that right. It gets into pathologizing blackness where then it's no, the the problem is with you. You're you're bitter. So it's like I said, you know, the things are are cultural differences, Um, the myth of racial of white racial innocence. So. White people think that they are racially innocent because they're not members of the Klan, because they're not walking around, slinging around in words. 
they see themselves as being innocent of racism. So then whenever you show them that this, that whatever it is that they're saying or doing is racist, it doesn't meet their standard because they then have this Jim Crow understanding of racism still. So they're saying, well, but this isn't segregation or, but this isn't, this isn't calling people the N word. This isn't whatever other thing that it is. It has to be something else. And so that something else isn't a problem with me. So it's not that the way that you're communicating culturally is different than my culture. So black people, African-Americans, we are what is called a high context culture. Mm. And so the way that we communicate is that we tend to use a lot of context whenever we talk about things. We tend to, whenever we're building out concepts, we tend to go from the general to to the specific. We tend to um, operate in looking at body language, looking at nonverbal cues, at pauses. Um, we, we communicate in a completely different way where we're European culture, especially Western European culture, is what's called a low-context culture. And so they are very direct. They are very evidence-based. They are very, they, they speak and listen for informational content. So with racism, a lot of what happens, because racism kind of, today's racism hides under a guise of plausible deniability. So a lot of the things that we're talking about, like Jamar said, about somebody rubbing his head, that's not something Somebody's not rubbing your head and calling you an N-word. They're rubbing your head. And so for a person with high context, that's you're rubbing my head. And that reminds me of the way that slave masters rub my ancestors' heads. And it reminds me of the way that I've seen people do the commodify black bodies in public spaces. Don't do this to me. Where for a white person, they are seeing themselves as an individual in a low context of I'm doing this. So what I'm doing, it may or may not be overtly racist. Like they're not trying maybe necessarily to be racist. Sometimes they are trying to be racist. And so that's where things can get confusing is because we don't know what the person's motive is. All we know is that we have all this context of things that have happened, of our history, how we orient ourselves in time and space. So it's not we're not just carrying ourselves as individuals. We're carrying ourselves and we're carrying the weight and the and the burden of racism that our community has experienced, that our ancestors have experienced. So whenever we reach a certain moment where somebody touches our hair in the store, where somebody calls our child a monkey, where someone does some, where a white person does something that they don't see, have the context for, we see all these things. And so then we say, this is racist. They don't have all the context for that. And so then whenever we try to give them the context, their understanding of racism is bathroom signs that are segregated, the N word, white hoods and sheets, burning crosses, that's their schema for racism. So then they say, but this this is my schema for racism. Rubbing somebody's head, patting somebody's hair, calling someone's child a monkey, well, that doesn't fit that schema. So it can't possibly be racism because I'm innocent of racism. I'm not a racist. I'm not a card-carrying member of the Klan. I'm glad you brought up that that, that piece about individualism is huge. I think the church needs a much better theology of the church. In other words, a much better understanding of what it means to be one body. 
because a body is all about context, right? When one suffers, we all suffer. Uh, if if somebody's experiencing joy, we experience joy with them. And and in a way, as a racial or ethnic minority, you have this experience, this this sort of collective experience that you're aware of as a racial minority. And so you can identify the broader context. You can identify the broader patterns. You can see like when something like Ferguson happens and there's this encounter between a, a white cop and a, a, a black teenager. When, when you see that and everything that happens around that, you're not just thinking of this specific encounter. You're thinking of Trayvon Martin that happened in 2012. You're thinking of Rodney yes. King in the 90s. Yeah. You're thinking of a yes. string of incidents that have been similar, and you're carrying that collective context with you. Well, if we had a better theology of what it means to be the church, we could hear one another better when we explain experiences that may be different than ours. We could understand, okay, this person has a context and a sense of a collective experience that maybe I don't have. And just because I don't have it doesn't mean that what they're not saying isn't true. And if if we kind of mm-hmm. brought that home a little bit and applied it to race relations in America, maybe we could understand a little bit better. But that's a huge thing for white people in general, but white evangelicals in particular, to start to, to unpack for themselves is how sort of individualistic and atomistic they have, uh, what a perspective they have on race is, as opposed to black people who tend to think of, quote unquote, the black experience. Even though it's highly diverse, there are lots of commonalities that, that we're bringing to the table when we experience racism and when we try to share about it. You know, it, it, this made me think, um, your tweet, Ali, and then what you just said, um, Jamar, it, it made me think of an incident that happened a few years back. It was in 2015, and it was in McKinney, Texas. And an officer basically, you know, crashed a pool party and slung a 15-year-old girl named Dejeria Beckton mm. to the ground. And that was another clip that went viral and uh, pulled his gun on some of the other young men that were kind of standing around and ran them off. And I remember, Jamar, we recorded an episode about this with Akemeni Uwan. And we talked about these things that the officer, um, Eric Casebolt, had done. And he later resigned from the force. But um, it's funny because recently, Dejeria Becton won a lawsuit mm. um, against uh, the city. And she won, I think it was in the neighborhood of like $150,000. And she just graduated from nice. high school. And, and so she received vindication right? Some small form of vindication um, for this at an amazing time. I mean, this could change the course of of a generation, like her family for, I mean, the foreseeable future could be completely changed because of what she has received, um, justly received for the actions and the humiliation. And they said that one of the ways she was going to celebrate was throwing a pool party. Like she was going to actually throw a pool party to celebrate, um, which I thought was so awesome, which is just a powerful statement. But, you know, if if we think about it, there are are thousands, millions of, of other people of color who will not be vindicated. I mean, we have, you know, on, on earth that is not be vindicated, maybe by our government, not be vindicated by the courts. I mean, we have a situation now at the border where thousands of children are separated from their, their parents. 
um, seeking asylum or, or trying to get over here for a better life. And so now they may not be vindicated in the way that they should. And so it, it, it not to Jesus juke it, but it does give me an, a further impetus to remember that the kingdom of God brings vindication, that the kingdom of God and the good King, Jesus Christ <laughs> will vindicate in the end. And we don't cling to that as some empty hope. We work as well for justice now, and we push for that. And that's why our votes are so important. That's why what we say is so important. That's why who we support for these positions in in cabinets and administrations and Supreme Court, that's why it's so important. But we do have this ultimate hope that Christ is, is our vindicator. But the church has to model the example of Christ and be an advocate for the marginalized and the vulnerable and those who are the least of these. And if the church doesn't do that, people won't know that there is a vindicator. And that's really what we're saying is if you don't believe us, how will someone watching think that you will believe them, that Christ will believe them, that God cares about them? Mm-hmm. Um, because we're his representative. Yeah. So hopefully that's a, a word for all of us to to think about the way that we we treat one another and believe what we say because it has implications and consequences. In other words, man. watch your witness. Ah, yes. Matt, I like no. how you did that. I like <laughs> Ali, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for joining us, Ali. We really appreciate you being on. And um, man, you know what? Let's do this again sometime. Like just a tip of the iceberg of the knowledge she has to drop. So yeah, sounds good. Well, thank you for having me on. I am so honored. I'm so honored to work in the group. I I, I love the group. Everybody is so is so awesome. And so I just want to give a shout out to pass to my Facebook group. But thank you so much. Hey, hey, look, and if if you're waiting to get in, it's going to be okay. Just keep waiting. Just hold on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm going through, I'll I'll go through in the next, in the next week and and get people answer the questions. That's how you get in the group is by answering the questions. You don't answer answer the questions. questions. And we'll we'll believe you. (laughs) Whatever you put down, we'll believe you. But you know, you gotta, you gotta do the work. Okay. So, yes, but we appreciate you, Ali. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.